Many Christians are familiar with the concept of fasting, yet most seem to be uncertain if it's a practice that God requires from His people today. But if it is something modern Christians should be doing, isn't ignorance dangerous at best? Today we're going to study the scriptures from the Old to the New Testament to better understand what fasting is, but we're also going to answer the necessary question, should Christians fast? Because if fasting glorifies God, doesn't He deserve our fasting? The one true God of the universe has existed since eternity past in ultimate perfection. He spoke the cosmos into existence for His soul, honor, and glory. He moved heaven and earth to redeem mankind, even though we have nothing to offer Him. And He's given us everything we need for life and godliness in His Word. He deserves our worship. He deserves our adoration. He deserves our praise. I'm your host, A.M. Brucer, and this is the Celebration of God. I'm so glad you're joining us today. If you are new to the show, I hope you'll visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this discipleship experience. Our introductory episodes will help you better understand what we're all about and how we hope to help you worship God better this year than you did last year. We also want to equip you to help the people in your life worship God better this year. They may be friends or family, fellow church members, or even strangers, but God wants to use you to mature them. I also hope you'll listen to the series we just finished up last week. It's all about how we can be merciful as God is merciful. The year-long celebration of God is part of the Evermind Ministries family, along with Truth Love Family, Faith Tree Biblical Counseling and Discipleship, and A.M. Brewster Ministries. Evermind is dedicated to keeping God's truth at the center of the human experience. And once again, I am honored to have you join us today to learn what the Bible has to say about fasting. In order to assist you in learning this information, we have free episode notes, transcripts, and fasting resources at celebrationofgod.com, which is linked in the description of this episode. And now let's get started. We've talked about fasting from time to time over the past three years. It's an important concept, one that many modern Christians don't understand, let alone do. So today my goal is to look at as much of the biblical data on the subject as possible, as well as answer the questions, how can we use fasting to worship God? And does the Bible command Christians to fast? Now, unlike the rest of our episodes, I'm leaning heavily on someone else's notes today. Earlier this year, my Sunday school class went through a number of Christian disciplines, and we had one full class dedicated to fasting. So I asked the teacher if I could combine his notes with mine and present it on the show, and he was more than happy. And the basis of this outline began with notes from Capitol Hill Baptist Church's core seminar. And speaking of notes, today's episode notes will be very full of scripture passages. I likely won't be able to read them all or even cite them all on the show today, so make sure you download today's notes so that you have all of the relevant passages. Okay, let's get started with number one, an introduction to fasting. A. Definitions of fasting. The most inclusive definition used by many today is summed up well by Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. Quote, abstinence from anything that is legitimate in and of itself for some special spiritual purpose. End quote. This can include technology, sugar, and even sex, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7 5. Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time, so that you may devote yourselves to prayer. However, there is a narrower definition of fasting that refers to, quote, voluntary abstinence from physical nourishment, food and drink, for special spiritual purposes, unquote. For the scope of this study, we're going to deal only with this type of fasting. This is the type of fasting we see in the scriptures. 
And though you may be able to point to the 1 Corinthians 7-5 passage to reference a quote-unquote sex fast of sorts, it's not actually called a fast, so we need to be careful assuming that all the other clear passages about fasting apply to activities and items other than food and drink, because I think it's clear from the context of all of them that they don't. And obviously, we're not talking about any kind of fasting done solely for health purposes. We will mention the health benefits of fasting on part three of this series, but those are not our primary concern. So with that foundation laid, let's look at B, fasting in the Old Testament. One of the earliest commands for fasting comes as one of the number of expectations God had for observing the Day of Atonement. I'll put a number of references in the show notes for you. But after reading the passages, you'll probably notice that the English word fast and fasting don't appear in the text. I won't take time to go into it now in any great detail. Instead, I'll save it for a future talk on the Day of Atonement. But just so you know, the Jews interpreted one key idea in those passages as a reference to fasting. Thankfully, though, we don't have to rely on hearsay, because in Acts 27.9, we learn about the fateful voyage of Paul where he was shipwrecked. Not only does the chronology line up around the Day of Atonement, but Paul specifically refers to the observance simply by referring to it as the fast. And it'll be helpful to recognize that this fast was expected of the Jews. It wasn't optional. Then much later, after the exile in Zechariah 8.19, we read of a number of national fasts that landed on the 4th, 5th, 7th, and 10th months. And as we continue reading the Old Testament, we'll see some occasional fasts, some by individuals and some by a group of people, and I'll include references to those as well. But we don't just learn about the times and frequencies of fasting, we also learn about much of the motivation for fasting. Fasting often gave expression to grief, penitence, and humility. And fasting was often also directed towards securing the guidance and help of God. So we see that some fasts were commanded by God, some were instituted by men, and most of them had a very Godward focus. Now let's turn our attention to letter C, fasting in the New Testament. Let's transition from the old to the new by considering the Jewish practice in the first century. Obviously, they were still observing the Day of Atonement, but we also learn from Luke 18, 11 through 12 and Matthew 9.14, that the Pharisees fasted every week on Monday and Thursday. And in Luke 2.36-37, we learn that Anna the prophetess, who prophesied over the infant Jesus at the temple, had a habit of worshiping the Lord with fastings and prayers. One of the most famous fasts in the Bible happened while Jesus was in the wilderness, and the fasting of Jesus' disciples is assumed in Matthew 6.16-18. We also learn in Acts that the leaders of the church fasted when choosing missionaries and elders, and Paul twice refers to fasting in some of his letters. Now, with the exception of the Day of Atonement, many of the fasts weren't necessarily expected from the church, but it was something we know they were doing. Now, you may wonder what the significance of all this is for modern Christians, but we're going to save those thoughts until later in the episode. All right, so we've been briefly introduced to the instances of fasting in the Bible. Now let's turn our attention to number two, the components of fasting. As we work through all of the examples of fasting in the Bible, we can see that there are at least four components of fasting. Fasting is often described in terms of what is given up, who participates, the duration of the fast, and how often the fast is conducted. Let's consider letter A, the degree of abstinence. It's fair to observe that an otherwise normal fast is abstinence from all food and drink. We see this in Esther 4, 15 through 16, Ezekiel 10, 6, Acts 9, 8 through 9, and Deuteronomy 9, 9. An example of what may be considered a partial fast, which is limiting of diet but not complete abstinence from food, may be found in Daniel 1.12. 
Of course, there are others who believe that the timing presented in this text had more to do with the duration of the test than the duration of the actual fast, but it's, I think it's fair to say that good men disagree on this particular point. However, elongated fasts did not presuppose that the participants ceased drinking necessarily water. Just realize that when we say abstaining from food and drink, we're not talking about the water necessary to survive. Now let's look at letter B, the number of participants in the fast. Sometimes a fast was private. This is the kind of fast about which Jesus was talking in Matthew 6, 16 through 18. But there were also small group fasts. Acts 13, 1 through 3 illustrates that we can fast with other Christians as a shared commitment. And then the last category could be called a congregational fast. This fast can be conducted by an entire congregation of God's people, like a nation or more. Esther 4, 16 describes a fast of all the Jews in Susa. Nehemiah 9.1 describes a fast by an entire nation of Israel. And Joel 2.15-16 is a third example of a congregational fast. Letter C. The length of the fast. When it comes to how long the fast lasts, it's clear that there are many options because the New Testament doesn't give any commands about length. We learn about fasts that cover part of a day, one day, three days, seven days, ten days, twenty-one days, and even the three different forty-day fasts of Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And finally, let's consider letter D, the frequency of fasts. I believe there are three categories for this. The regular fast was on a repetitive schedule. The Day of Atonement is a good example of that. And the Pharisees in Luke 8-12 congratulated themselves for fasting twice every week. Then there's the occasional fast, which appears to be motivated by a perceived need. Most of the fasting in scriptures actually seem to fall into this category. And then there's the continuous fast. Examples of this would include Samson, John the Baptist, and the Nazarites, who all abstained from various foods and beverages for long portions or the entirety of their lives. Okay, so for those, uh, those are our definitions, our examples, and the facets of fasting in the Bible. So now the main question on all of our minds is, number three, should Christians fast? Now, in order to answer this question, I believe it's really important for us to take a step back and consider the main truths the Bible teaches about food and drink in general. Before I read one such passage, I want to encourage you to listen to episode 109, Celebrating God with Your Food. I'll put a link in the description of today's episode so that you can easily find it. Fasting is an important way we celebrate God with our food, but it's just one way. All right, letter A. The New Testament sets divine expectations for our food and drink. Let's consider 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron, men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. This is an interesting place to start on the topic of fasting. Generally speaking, food and drink are part of God's good creation and from which we are not meant to abstain if it is received with thanksgiving. It seems that Paul is eager to warn against a kind of asceticism that exalts fasting in such a way that God's goodness in the gift of food is overlooked or distorted. This leads us to conclude that Christian fasting is not some form of asceticism. In Colossians 2, 20-23, Paul warns against that kind of severe lifestyle. He says that it dishonors Christ by rejecting the sufficiency of his person and his work. 
Now, I don't often quote John Piper, but I like what he says concerning this passage. He says, This is a strong warning against any simplistic view of fasting that thinks it will automatically do a person spiritual good. It is not that simple. Severe treatment of the body may only feed a person's flesh with more self-reliance. End quote. In these texts, as well as Romans 14, 3-6 and 1 Corinthians 8, we see that fasting can be good or bad, beneficial or harmful. And so it's important to acknowledge that, letter B. Fasting is nowhere commanded in the New Testament. Yet it is abundantly clear in Scripture that Jesus assumed his followers would fast. In one of Heath Lambert's most recent episodes on his podcast, Marked by Grace, he deals with this very point. I'll link the podcast in the description for you. Nowhere in the Bible are New Testament Christians commanded to fast, but everywhere that fasting is discussed, it is assumed that New Testament Christians, Jews and Gentiles, would be fasting. And this is significant for two reasons. Let me start with the negative. First, Heath Lambert and I believe that God doesn't command fasting because living in this fallen world sometimes requires people to eat. Some of you have health issues that would make it dangerous to stop eating, even for a portion of the day. I believe Jesus recognized that modern individuals would have health issues not experienced by most in the New Testament times. And had he directly commanded that we had to fast, many of you would be in a conflict of conscience. But it's not commanded, and likely for this very reason. In the same way that we're never commanded to fast from water. You can only survive three or four days like that, and then you die. However, second, the obvious assumption is that Christians will obviously fast. Let's look at Matthew 6, 16-18. In this passage, Jesus himself gives us a negative com- command, a positive command, and a promise. The negative command is that we should not look somber when we're fasting, like we're suffering as we fast. But again, the idea is that we will be fasting. When you are fasting, don't look somber. The positive command in this passage is that no one should be able to tell by your appearance when you're fasting. The only observer of your fast should be God. And the promise is that your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, please notice that Jesus gives no specific command about when, how often, or how long we should fast. Just like all of our obedience, fasting is not to be a legalistic routine done simply on routine because we were told to do it. Instead, it's a privilege and an opportunity to seek God's grace. So, with all of this said, I argue that we should use fasting as much as possible as part of our worship of God. Now, we'll talk about what this looks like more practically in a couple of episodes, but for now, the reality is that fasting is a powerful tool to use in our celebration of God, and the burden falls on us to know, understand, and utilize this glorious resource. Therefore, I must warn that it's hard to read the scriptures and assume that God is perfectly pleased with us when we're ignorant of what it means to fast and when we knowingly don't do it even though we could. But I also want to look at Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him asking, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, The attendants of the bridegroom cannot mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, can they? But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. But no one puts a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and a worse tear results. Nor do people put new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise the wineskins burst, and the wine pours out, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into fresh wineskins, and both are preserved. 
Now, who is the bridegroom? Jesus. When was he taken away from his disciples? When he ascended into heaven. After that time, the disciples would fast again. Of this observation, John Piper says, It is true that Jesus has given the Holy Spirit in his absence, and that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. So, in a profound and wonderful sense, Jesus is still with us. Nevertheless, there is a greater degree of intimacy that we will enjoy with Christ in heaven when this age is over. So, in another sense, Christ is not with us, but away from us. In other words, in this age, there is an ache inside every Christian that Jesus is not here as fully and intimately and as powerfully and as gloriously as we want him to be. We hunger for so much more. That is why we fast. End quote. Now, there is still so much more to say about this. To be honest, knowledge and understanding are super important because they are the necessary foundation of living wisely. But without the wise application of what we've learned, God is not glorified by our mere knowledge and understanding. We need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. This means that we need to talk about practical ways we uh, can take what we've learned about fasting and apply it to our holiday and everyday worship of the Lord. And that's exactly what the next two episodes are all about. In the meantime, I encourage you to visit celebrationofgod.com and check out our podcast series page. There you'll find this series along with a fasting Bible reading that includes a ton of passages concerning fasting. I encourage you to do your own study. I believe an honest understanding of this subject will lead you to see the important part it can and may need to play in your obedience to God. Please share this series on your favorite social media outlets, and don't hesitate to reach out to counselor at celebrationofgod.com if you have personal questions and struggles that need specific guidance. And join us next time as we seek to better know, love, and worship God and help the people in our lives do the same. To that end, we'll be discussing fasting and the holidays. If you want to know God better, celebrate Him more, and help the ones you love to do the same, subscribe to this podcast and visit celebrationofgod.com to learn more about this dynamic discipleship resource. And remember, the Celebration of God is a listener-supported ministry.